0: Hi, I'm Christine and I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning into our discussion this week.
1: Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful.
0: So now we invite you to join us as we together listen
1: listen for for the the
0: word. word. Hi everybody and welcome to our podcast today. We are looking at The book of Luke, we're still there in chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. So I'm going to have Alan jump right in here.
1: Thanks, Christy. Our gospel lesson for this week is another challenging one. Um, Essentially, in this whole section of Luke 16, Jesus is taking on the opposition of the Pharisees who saw him as breaking the Torah by welcoming those they considered unclean. And instead, Jesus rebuked them for ignoring the fundamental role of showing mercy to the poor that you find throughout Moses and the prophets.
0: Right, right.
1: So part of this challenge with the text that we're having that we're dealing with today it has to do with where we begin. Um, the Revised Common Lectionary simply directs us to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but without the preceding context in verses fourteen mm-hmm. to eighteen, I think it's all too easy to fall into one of the common misunderstandings of this parable—that it is intended to convey a message about the afterlife.
0: And I might jump in here too. I think I think our Bibles also get into. Get us into this habit mm-hmm. with the little um, titles they yes, put in front the subheadings. of subheadings, so we think, "Oh, it starts here." Right. Where when we're looking at it as a as a complete um, narrative that Luke's drawing for us, where we need to jump back. So it's kind yeah. of funny
1: because I was, you know, you, you look at different New Testament scholars, and it depends on their methodology. A form critic like Joseph. Fitzmaier sees, sees several of these verses in verses 18, 14 to 18 as disconnected pieces of oral tradition that Luke has just collected. I've, here. S-
0: I've read that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh,
1: on the other hand, Joel Green, who, who, who is a guy that I've been using a lot this year for, our, for, mm-hmm. my, for my study, um, he's taking a narrative approach, and he argues 14 to 31 is all
0: connected. It's
1: all of a piece. You know,
0: I like. I kind of side with Joel Green here. I think Luke is a better author than just to throw stuff in. I really, really do. I think. Well, it
1: has to do with the way the form critics, hmm. uh, the assumptions they made about the way the gospels originated.
0: Right. Right. Yep. Yep. But um, it's you get where they come from, right? Too. But but no, I kind of like Joel Green's approach too here. I think. I think that. I think it makes more sense. And I think as you're going to show us here. folks are going to understand this a little bit more. Yeah. So go ahead.
1: So beginning with verse 14, then Luke reports the Pharisees ridicule of Jesus' teachings about wealth in Luke 16, 10 to 13, probably as well in the parable of the dishonest manager, and perhaps as well in the whole of chapters 14 and 15. Um, you know, his teachings on hospitality and mercy that that basically mm-hmm. he's, he's given in those chapters. So... You know, this is where we begin. And it's also essential, I think, to understanding the parable of the rich man Lazarus to note that Luke describes the Pharisees as lovers of money. And now, historically speaking, the Pharisees were not generally known to be wealthy, but obviously there were some who Mm -hmm. were wealthy. Mm -hmm. And here I would say the word reflects the attitude toward wealth that Jesus had warned against Mm -hmm. in in the previous part of chapter 16, Uh, essentially a kind of covetousness, basically. Um, But it may also refer to their desire for achieving high social standing, and that was something that I don't I think it's fairly obvious to see that was that was common among the Pharisees, that they were concerned about yes, their status yes, in society. Yes,
0: and, and one tends to look up towards the guy who has the money to build the big castle who can invite who he wants to, give them a big banquet. I mean, our mm-hmm. society works like that now. Mm-hmm. We see the same thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
1: like the leader of the Pharisees that Jesus uh, you know, dined with and, and exactly. gave the instructions to. Right?
0: Exactly.
1: Now, furthermore, uh, Jesus characterizes the Pharisees as those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, and this reminds me especially of the lawyer who was dialoguing with Jesus in connection with the parable of the good Samaritan, and because Luke says, wanting to justify himself, he asked the question, "Who is my neighbor?" Because mm-hmm. you know right. G- he th- he asked, you know, how do I enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, "What does the law tell you?" And he says, "Love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself." Jesus says. You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. And right. but, but Luke said he wanted to justify yep. himself. Yes,
0: he did. And he, so yes, he did. Th-
1: this this is a connection here, and th- this was the yeast of the Pharisees that Jesus had warned against in verse in chapter twelve, verse one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there it was, it just plainly called hypocrisy. Right. So yeah. you know we get an idea of a total picture of what's going on with the Pharisees here. <clears throat> Now Jesus reminds the Pharisees that God knows your hearts and this was something that was virtually axiomatic in the Hebrew Bible beginning with the statement about David in 1 Samuel 16 and it goes throughout the the Psalms and the prophets.
0: Right, right.
1: And Jesus continues by saying what is prized by human humans is an abomination in the sight mm. of God. And you know this may seem strange to us but I think if we if we step back and look at the context it'll help us. The Pharisees had complained about Jesus' willingness to forego concerns of ritual purity by associating with sinners. And and this was based on their interpretive framework for Torah. As they looked at the Torah or the law, this was an offense against God's holiness to associate with these sinners, Mm -hmm. right? Right. But Jesus says that the true offense against God, the true abomination, is their love of wealth and honor, which Jesus has already made clear in verse 13, constitutes a kind of idolatry. You cannot serve God and mammon, he says. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that the term abomination here, delugma, is used in the Septuagint to refer to what is associated with idols. So the word itself... Is associated oh, yeah. with idolatry. Okay. We, we don't tend to think of that just with abomination, but Mm-mm. but the word itself has associations with the way the Hebrew Bible describes idolatry.
0: Oh, really interesting. Okay. So so
1: so they're they're complaining about his violation of ritual purity, and he's saying, "No, you're the ones who are right. really you're you're missing the, you're God. missing
0: the point." And yeah, and oh. uh, mm-hmm. obviously he's making this you know this to the Pharisees, but I think we can see that. In our own world today, as Surely. well, right? Surely, um, where we maybe maybe we're giving a whole bunch of money to a charity that purports to do all these things, but then actually isn't reaching the people it's supposed to reach, or, or how we like actually
1: that. treat the people that we encounter. Right. Well,
0: <laughs> maybe even a more direct example, yeah. right? right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: So then Jesus proceeds to provide another theological basis for his willingness to associate with sinners. And that is the nature of the kingdom of God is such that the good news is directed primarily toward the poor whom the Jewish religious leaders viewed as unclean. And we saw this in mm-hmm. Luke four yeah. eighteen. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to, to proclaim the good news to the poor, um, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. And these were all people who would have been considered unclean. So Jesus says that since John the Baptist came, the good news of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed. That's the first part of 16:16. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is I think we're meant to hear sort of an echo of Luke 4:18 about the preaching of the good news to the poor. Here he's saying, the good news of the kingdom is being pr- preached. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and in the new RSV, Jesus continues by saying, and everyone tries to enter it by force Now, the interpretation of that phrase of this verse is disputed. And there are two very different translations. Mm. Many English Bibles follow the translation of the new RSV. And that sort of fits the version of this saying in Matthew eleven twelve, 12, which is a parallel. But in that context, it refers to the violence that was done to John the Baptist as an example of the treatment those who follow Jesus could expect. Mm-hmm. But Luke's context is very different. Um, here Jesus is summarizing the understanding of the kingdom of God as an interpretive framework for the law and the prophets. Mm-hmm. And so I prefer the translation that's found uh, in the New RSV Margin and also in the Common English Bible and some others, that everyone is strongly urged to enter it. That really so, changes
0: the image yes, in your mind. Yes. Mm-hmm. So,
1: so again... Since John the Baptist, the good news of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed, and everyone is strongly urged to enter it. This is Jesus' rationale for doing what he's doing. And that is, yes. Yeah, and and that is that that basically, you know, he's not only contradicting the Pharisees' narrow view of the extent of God's mercy, which was confined only to those who, like them, you know, kept ritual purity. But, but also, he's, he's giving a much broader view of the kingdom, which includes everyone. And, and it reminds me of, of um, Jesus' teaching in chapter 14, where he's talking to the Pharisees there, and he talk, tells a story about the, the banquet, and nobody wants to come, and so the, the, the host sends his slaves out right. to the lanes and the roads and 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 says compel everyone to come in to my banquet and so the this, this is the idea here i think as well is mm-hmm. that is that the kingdom of god then becomes the interpretive framework yes. for jesus understanding of the law and the prophets right. whereas it was clean and unclean in matters of ritual purity that were that was the interpretive framework for the pharisees
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it's Obviously we we've seen this before, right? This is this is this broader theology that yeah. Jesus before, but I think it's um in this parable to me it has this <laughs> Kind of awakening sense about it, I guess. Yeah, maybe that. Maybe we don't always. Well, and,
1: I mean, this is part of the ongoing argument, so to speak, between Jesus and the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Jesus tries to proclaim to them this this really open handed ver- vision of God's mm-hmm. kingdom for all people, especially for those who are outcast, and they respond with this sort of um, stingy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, sort of mean-spirited stinginess that says no you know you have to you have to be ritually pure right, right. in order to please god
0: Yeah yeah exactly okay so now that's kind of all the the context, really, as we dig into this parable, right? Yep, it brings yeah.
1: us to the parable itself. And you, you can't see this in my notes, but I've been using parable in quotation marks because this story is not labeled a parable in mm. Luke's gospel. And that's part of the debate about those who want to use this to justify um a certain version of the afterlife but that this that this is a parable is all too obvious just by the details of it just by the way it reads so the story is and the story is a dramatic illustration of the great reversal which we've already seen (laughs) Mm -hmm. so many times in luke's gospel Uh, this rich man was not simply wealthy wealthy but i think we could say he was obscenely wealthy and it's easy to miss that if we don't pay attention so in verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now in our context, there's not a whole lot that rings bells or, or, or sets off alarms about, about this man's wealth, but only the wealthiest of the wealthy could afford to wear both purple cloth and fine linen. Yep. You know, yes. oh, if, yes. if you had one or the other, Right. That would mark you as wealthy. Right. But to wear both purple cloth and fine linen, that was only, you know, only the wealthiest of the wealthy. Oh
0: yeah. Well it, it costs so much to make those purple dyes and
1: And and to make the and to make the fine linen exactly. the, the, the quality of it and, and especially a lot of it a lot of times it was whitened and the whitening yep. process was also very expensive.
0: Exactly. Yep.
1: So again, this marked him as really right. obscenely rich. Furthermore, the fact that this man feasted sumptuously every day indicated that he had the ability to consume a conspicuously extravagant amount of food. So the word feast for for feasting is the same word um, that's used in the parable of the prodigal son for the celebration that the father throws killing the fatted calf in celebration that his younger son has returned alive. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that this man throws this kind of an extravagant banquet You know, every day. Yeah. And he has the ability to consume this conspicuously extravagant amount of food.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The fact that his home had a gate also implies that he lived in a large estate. Yes. The only thing this man doesn't have is a name. And I think that's very, very likely intentional.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a little detail that is easily missed. Mm -hmm. Because we have rich man parables other places, but this Mm -hmm. is interesting because Lazarus is named. Lazarus does have a name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So moving ahead.
1: Now, the situation of Lazarus couldn't have been more opposite.
0: You know, I'm going to interrupt you a minute because I think the first thing that many come to mind is, oh, is this our friend Lazarus, that Jesus' friend who dies?
1: I don't think there's any reason to th- see any kind of connection. Um, Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary, you know, they, they lived in a home. They yes, seemed exactly. to be um, self-sufficient. This, this man, Lazarus, was destitute. Right. You know, and, and one of the things we have to understand is that the, the, the name behind this Greek name, Lazarus, was Eleazar. And if you think about how many times Eleazar occurs in the whole in the Old exactly. Testament, I mean, it so, was a common
0: name. So this is just another guy named yeah. Lazarus, yeah. and uh, I it, mean, if as common as John or Mark or, or Bob or whatever. <laughs> right,
1: John Doe. I mean, you know, yeah. it wasn't okay. really, it wasn't yeah. really. All I, that I've heard that coming.
0: question before. I think some people make that assumption, and so that's just yeah. uh, it doesn't it doesn't work. So, no,
1: not here. Yeah, not at all. So the situation of this Lazarus couldn't have been more opposite. Uh, Luke tells us in verses 20 and 21, At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. So, you know, the fact that he's called a poor man may lead us to underestimate his condition. His poverty is, is actually destitution he is destitute he has nothing he's, it's not that he's poor we think of we think of the poverty level in this country these are people who still are able to right. eke out some sort of livelihood right. this man has nothing
0: and this is an interesting contrast because we have the richest of the rich, the rich of the rich, and the poorest, most destitute. Yes, um, yes. that these really drawing opposite these great ends. opposites, yes. yeah, opposite ends okay. of the
1: extremes. Yes, that he and and the, and the, the Greek says he was laid at mm-hmm. the gate of the rich man. The, the New RSV kind of obscures that with the translation that he lay at the gate. Yeah,
0: no, it's, the, it's the, the
1: the Greek says he was laid at the gate of the rich man, which likely indicates that he was somehow physically disadvantaged, mm-hmm. and the Geneva Bible the King James, the American Standard, the New American Standard, NIV, and ESV all follow that tradition. I like that translation a lot better. No mention of his clothing is made. Likely he wore rags, but what he was covered with was sores, Mm -hmm. which would have marked him as unclean.
0: Right, right.
1: There is no mention of what he actually ate. What we're told is that he longed to be filled with what fell from the table of the rich man. We're not told that he actually ate anything mm-hmm. from the man's table. We're just told that he longed for what was fell from the man's table. And Joel Green suggests that he could only get that from what was scavenged by dogs, since he would not have had access to the rich man's table at all. So in other words, these, these sort of mongrel dogs that would have been roaming the town for, for right. scraps of garbage... Uh, whatever they dragged up to him maybe the leftovers of what they didn't eat was what mm-hmm. lazarus had to sustain himself on the one thing this man does have is a name
0: mm-hmm. that's all he has yeah yeah so isn't that an interesting it's kind of a it's kind of a beautifully developed story of, of oh, the contrast here. couldn't be yeah. more strongly drawn yeah, it's yeah very more starkly drawn yeah.
1: yeah
0: all right which which of course Reminds us that it's a parable, not some real life situation, but but a parable. Yes,
1: indeed. So Jesus continues the story then in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, although the poor man died, there's no mention of any kind of burial. And, you know, that basically in that day and time, that would have been the height of disgrace, you know. yeah, yeah. um, Perhaps his body would have just been disposed of in the trash dump.
0: You yeah know. or tossed aside in some yeah and some general grave i mean this has been something of historically that has been an yeah. issue right it's like you know don't have a even a, a, a acknowledgement that you're you're right. worthy of having anything right. you know an aside is the egyptians used to pay people to mourn for them mm-hmm. and the richer you were the, more oh, people, the same you thing paid was them true them in the mourn. jewish, jewish yeah. community as well and they so, had paid mourners yeah, yeah and yeah. so this is a guy that's they're not even worth mourning.
1: No, he's not even know, worth mourning. mourning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he is carried away by angels into the bosom of Abraham. So, you know, he doesn't have a funeral on earth, but he's carried away by angels into the bosom of Abraham. Mm-hmm. Again, the NRSV kind of obscures this with their translation, to be with Abraham. I think it says something like that. The notion of the bosom of Abraham is a notion that's not known in pre-Christian Jewish literature, but it may allude to the idea that Lazarus was elevated to a place of honor at the heavenly banquet table. And the idea of a heavenly banquet um, was one that was also fairly common in the prophets. So Lazarus, who was the lowest of the low, has been exalted to the place of highest honor. And as the parable brings out, his extreme suffering in life is exchanged For ultimate comfort Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the other hand the rich man who was likely honored at his burial winds up in torment in Hades now again it's tempting to take the respective fates of Lazarus and the rich man as a definitive indication of the fate of the righteous and the wicked in the afterlife that is not the point of this parable Furthermore, I think it's important for us to recognize and remember that Hades is the translation for Sheol in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew word Sheol, which is simply the equivalent of the grave. Everyone who dies goes to Sheol or Hades in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, in later Jewish literature, there emerged a notion of different places in Sheol or Hades, which seems to be the case with this parable, um, you know, with mm-hmm. with. Uh, Lazarus being in a place that is that is a place of comfort and, and the rich man being in a place that's a place of torment. But they're both in, essentially in Hades. They're both in the grave. Now, I think it's important to re- remember that in the New Testament, we do not have a fully developed notion of heaven and hell. Um, have- as I've pointed out before, all of all of that is still developing and it's not consolidated until much later the church fathers are the ones in the 2nd century and beyond who began that process and it's not completed until the high middle ages
0: i was going to say we always think of dante yeah that's a 14th century figure so right. <laughs> and 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 that really by the way is dante has made his way to the present that's very much the image that our re- renaissance folks are going to have.
1: Well, and, and most people still today read that whole image of the afterlife of heaven and hell into this parable. And that that is not the point of this parable. This parable is not intended to teach us about the afterlife. The right. point of this parable is to illustrate the great reversal. Yes, 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 This rich man who had received his consolation in life, remember Jesus' uh, beatitudes in, in, mm-hmm. in, in Luke chapter 6, blessed are the poor, mm-hmm. But woe to you who are rich now, because you have received your consolation. Right. So this rich man who had already received his consolation in life right. has fallen into torment.
0: That makes that makes so much sense. And uh it just is it, it Yeah, I, I think we'll talk later about this temptation to go into this other other mm-hmm. other space and it just really I think I think it really is It misses the point. Yeah, it misses the point. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So despite the separation between them and despite the dramatic reversal of circumstances, the rich man persists in presuming that he can call on Father Abraham to extend him the mercy he withheld from Lazarus. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he calls Lazarus by name shows that the rich man not only recognized him <laughs> as the poor man who laid at his gate, but that he knowingly ignored Lazarus's need.
0: That is really a huge point that I Isn't think you it? missed. It's that this rich guy, it's not like Lazarus is just laying Lazarus. there. He knows who this guy <laughs> yeah. is. Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: But again, Abraham reminds the rich man of the contrast between his fortunes in life and those of Lazarus and reinforces the theme of reversal. The one who was lowly has been lifted up, and the one who was rich has been sent away empty, in the words of Mary's Magnificat in Luke Mm -hmm. 1 51 Mm -hmm. 52. The one who was last has become first, and the one who was first has become last. The one who had exalted himself has been humbled, and the one who was humbled has been exalted. In Jesus' words, in Luke thirteen thirty and Luke yes. fourteen eleven, so so this is what's going on here: is this great reversal that that yep. we've already seen Jesus um, referring to in the Beatitudes um, in in Luke thirteen and Luke fourteen, you know, with his specific statements, and and here we see it illustrated. Illustrated, this
0: and I, I boy. Is I think Luke is brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know that this theme is woven in these different ways for, for I mean, when I'm mm-hmm. thinking of it in terms of readers, for us to continue to stumble across, yep. to continue to,
1: continually reinforces these points. Uh, us. Yes, 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 indeed, yes, indeed. Well, and we're going to see he also does that with his with with the, with the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, and 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 how how this constitutes a critique of the Pharisees is brilliant, I think, on Luke's part Mm -hmm. as well. So despite all of this, you know, even though Abraham says no, the rich man persists in the presumption that he has a right to call on Abraham as father, although he didn't follow Abraham's example of hospitality, and to use Lazarus as a witness to warn his five brothers. Yeah. That his true concern, however, did not, con- did not extend beyond those who were members of his own social right, status is right. obvious here, right? Yeah. Now, the idea of someone returning from the dead to visit the living was a common one in the ancient Mediterranean mm-hmm. world, but Abraham also refuses this request. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them, yep. verse 29. Yep. And, you know, the Hebrew Bible is filled with clear statements about the responsibility of those with means to care for those who are poor. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you are familiar with the Hebrew Bible at all, you, you can't miss it. It's right. there all right. over the place. This was something that this, re, this rich man as well as his brothers should have listened to, as should the Pharisees who opposed Jesus. And that's part of the point here, right? right. Is that Jesus is using this parable. At, you know, the, the Pharisees are ridiculing him for all that he said to them about, Practicing hospitality and extending mercy to sinners, and and even about the dangers of wealth, and 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 so basically, this constitutes sort of a counter critique uh, of Jesus. You know that hey, right. <laughs> you, you you claim to you claim to follow Moses. Um, why don't you start practicing what you preach, fellas?
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: one of the things that that, that I call to mind is, you know, Matthew has a whole chapter of woes right. against the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Right. Luke doesn't really have that that much. But this is almost a more powerful indictment against the Pharisees than that whole chapter that whole of woes, of woes. <laughs> in yeah. Matthew. Yeah. Because this just stands out so clearly that these, these Pharisees have, have clung to their own particular interpretation of the law, their right. own particular interpretation of Moses. It's all about this ritual purity, and they've ignored right. all of the justice and mercy right. that's in Moses, right? Right,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: So again, then the rich man insists that his brothers need or perhaps deserve more than just Moses and the prophets in order to repent. They need or deserve someone coming to them from the dead. But Abraham replies that if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, which is again, I think, another implicit criticism of the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. Jesus has come teaching them the ways of God in view of his mission of bringing the kingdom of God and the release that it conveys to everyone, especially the poor and the outcast. By refusing to extend care to the poor and the outcast, those who were unclean in their eyes, the Pharisees rejected the mercy that is at the heart of God's kingdom. By ridiculing Jesus, then, for his open practice of compassion, they demonstrated their denial of the very purpose at the heart of what God was doing in the world, yeah. and and I think that's the whole point of this parable is I to po- is to po- point out, you know, just like this rich man, they have totally missed the point of, of Moses and the prophets. They've missed the heart.
0: Yep, they've missed of yes, God's yes, will, yes,
1: and God's purpose for the world, and and yet they have the audacity to complain in chapter fifteen and here to ridicule Jesus. For the way he right. was going about carrying out god's will
0: right wow it's really rich it thank you indeed.
1: thank you hi friends we're back and we're going to turn it over to christy to uh, lead us through some insights into how the reformers uh looked at this passage. So tell us what you found, Kristen. Yeah,
0: I found some interesting things today. Um, And so I'm going to start just kind of telling you about a few of their responses to it. And then I'm going to go on into a really specific um, historical event where this passage is used. So first, just an overall comment is that the 16th century readers recognize that this parable contrasts the kingdom of heaven with the way the world works now and so at least in part they understand that it does have this reversal this great reversal as part of the message Um, but it also gets into this idea the afterlife that we were talking about last time that it gives this imagery for hell and so there's there's kind of mixed messages going on and 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 in this, and I think it's important to note, you know, and I had mentioned Dante earlier, but Dante, this 14th century figure, um, is is a literary genius at the time, and so these people are coming off of kind of assuming that Dante's. Um, description which was really fictional of hell really becomes part of how they began to envision hell and even though the reformers start to reject a lot of the things that the roman catholics have done they still haven't fully mm-hmm. morphed out of that right. kind of of imagery and mind you you're walking by and they're and even though many of them are starting specifically a reformed are starting to um um kind of um uh, denounce the, the images and things, they're still walking by cathedrals with all kinds of gargoyles mm-hmm. and things on them. Mm-hmm. And so this, this is no, still... No, they're still there today. It's They're still there today, aren't they? So this is still kind of part of the, the world, this medieval yeah. mix and this early modern world that come by so well and
1: i've i've understood dante as well yeah i mean the 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 divine comedy is a a work of fiction but i've always kind of understood as well that dante and john milton were kind of codifying um some of the notions that were that the popular notions about heaven and hell that were around in that culture but just because that, that that was the popular notions about heaven and hell maybe they were reinforced by church teaching i don't know that doesn't make it biblical
0: (laughs) exactly and of course you know there's the whole warning there is is to what extent does are you are you impacted coming into scripture by by things outside and and in these reformers which really do try to come purely to scripture you could still see how they're impacted by their kind of 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 late medieval early modern world, so very interesting, and so they're not going to say that Dante's right, and yet you could feel it like looming above, surely, and you could see it in here. Yeah, they just couldn't escape it. So, um, anyway, these reformers recognize that the expectations of the kingdom are different than the practices of the world, and they draw out these fairly obvious observations in the passage. And I think what I liked about um, is this is that they recognize the human condition. valuing wealth and criticizing the poor as being as relevant in their day as in the time of Christ. Mm -hmm. So um, they clearly saw this as having importance for them well, and it's no. still
1: true today. Absolutely. I mean, if it, if someone's poor, it, there must have be it must be your own fault that yeah. you, you've done something. You know, you've made bad choices or
0: something. Exactly. Yeah. One of the first clues that this recognizes in the passage is that the poor man Lazarus is named, but not the rich man, as Alan pointed out. And they did recognize this. The naming pattern alone is different than the human world, where the rich man is the one of note, and the poor man would be without a name. Yes. Um. And I. As we were talking about these graves, you know, there was those those debtors' graves, those poor men's graves mm-hmm. where... Just the,
1: unmarked. Unmarked. There's no name. Yeah. No name.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, the Reformers put forth the idea that God knows his own and, and not those who do not know God. So this rich guy, God did not know. He mm-hmm. was not a wow. man of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that this is a kingdom of heaven of parable is the contrast for in the human world, poverty is seen as a result of laziness. Yeah. The world judges poor people. And in this parable, we get an image of Lazarus begging for table scraps. In the world, he was poor because he had sinned. It was punishment. Right. Um, you can
1: almost he, hear Job's friends, you yeah. know, in the background saying, you know, Lazarus, what did you do? You know? Right,
0: right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and uh, furthermore, but they, they do note that the rich man had no reason for helping the poor man. The For, rich for man, not helping. Yeah, for not helping. Yeah. He was blatantly ignoring him, and um, the rich deserve condemnation for this lack of charity. Yeah. So these are some of the points they made, which which I think fit into with what we had described. Sure, sure. Um, but I think perhaps more interesting are the comments on heaven and hell. And by the way, this is used extensively in the imagery of the age to depict righteous and sinners. Mm-hmm. So, and I didn't go into that today, but if we want to go look at. Artworks and things, Lazarus is often depicted. Um, this parable is often depicted in art. Surely I, I went a different direction this time. Um, as as we know, we can we could take this many different directions. But uh, just to give you an idea of how they talked about heaven and hell, um, La- Lazarus represented not just a poor man, but someone who had faith and and a calmness, and <laughs> so they really. Elevate him even more, says Johannes Spangenberg. Um, he had a quiet heart and he was patient and willing. <laughs> they compliment his meekness and that he has no anger against the rich man.
1: <laughs> so, so making a virtue out of necessity, so to speak, yeah. because uh, what, what, what was this guy supposed to do? You know, exactly. <laughs> was he supposed to uh, complain to the Torah police that somehow yeah. he was, he was being overlooked? I mean, the Pharisees were the Torah police. They were the people who were encouraging right. that stuff and I, they didn't care.
0: I know, I know. Um, and, and I think what's interesting is this contrast of um, how um, the, the poor, um, of being elevated and of course the wealthy cursed but what's interesting is um, they do step back and say look it's it's really not that the, the wealth itself is is a sin and i i think there's an assumption there it, it places especially in the roman catholic tradition oh well you know you have to take this vow of poverty because if you're, Mm -hmm. that makes you closer to God and they're saying, no, we actually need wealth. And Melanchthon talks about this. We need the wealth to preserve the body and for economic needs and to pay the ministers so they can survive. And so it's not so much about the wealth, but how the wealth was used. Mm -hmm. Um, Luther is on this same page and, um, um, it, it reflects that the evil of the rich man for not caring for the poor man. But and here he adds, and, and so I haven't yet kind of dived into what I promised, which was this heaven and hell thing. And Luther really goes there um, and noting that the punishment in hell is the opposite of what one does not do on earth. Mm. <laughs> wow. And so he's making this connection. Look, this is how the the rich man was punished in hell which is because he didn't do this set sounds of a
1: lot like dante's levels of hell
0: it, it, that's exactly <laughs> what you hear there uh, exactly but and again luther's showing his background in the scholastic tradition um and not really the full theological development but i think what's interesting too is to me it's almost like a the opposite of works righteousness you do these things you get to heaven you do these things you go to hell mm-hmm. you know what i mean and so it really it really hasn't stepped into kind of a, a more sophisticated theology that like you presented so mm-hmm. um now i want to take you to one of the more unique pieces that i found which was the use of this scripture in a remembrance service. It, it was an English service, but it was in remembrance for King Charles the Ninth of France. And first of all, this is a weird scripture, I think, to use for any kind of funeral yeah, slash remembrance definitely. service, right? And so the, and this was um so this was being preached by an Anglican bishop named Edwin Sandys. Now I did a little background on him and he was, he was ended up an Anglican Bishop in the church of England during the reign of queen Elizabeth. Now what's significant about that is this is during, um, during a time when there's this, uh, this uh, recognition of both Roman Catholics and Protestants. Mm-hmm. There's this, there's this kind of toleration that's going on and he's actually greatly influenced prior to being in this role by Martin Bootzer. Mm-hmm. So he's, he tends to side a little bit more with the Protestant, uh, the traditionally Protestant mindset. But again, um, Anglican Church of England. This is where um, Queen Elizabeth is the head of the church. That's right. that's how right. it's defined, which I personally love. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> beside, back to the uh, uh, though, back to the uh, the situation of Charles the Ninth. I want to put him into context because this a this is a really important. Early modern event in history, but it's also a really important event for the relationships that the political relationships that emerge out of Reformation consciousness, and it's uh, uh, it becomes kind of a big deal. So, anyway, Charles Charles the Ninth, um, so the Remembrance Service dies in fifteen seventy four, um, and uh, anyway, it, as a French monarch. The French monarchy was staunchly Roman Catholic. But as we know with Calvin, who was French, that lots and lots of Protestant ideas, reformed ideas are coming into France and many, many, many nobles there are adopting um, Calvinist ideas and mm. they become known as, known as the Huguenot. Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned them before. Um, but unlike, and, and, and there are a few cities actually um, that Charles the Ninth is going to help Become um, Huguenot in their in their kind of their leadership, but as a whole, the 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 state of France is more. Unified, then we would think of the Holy Roman Empire, which had right. all these individual little principalities, where these principalities are, are choosing the religion of the area. France- well, that was the
1: that was just the way Central Europe was organized. You well, know, we think of it as nations. You know, Germany, and, right. and Czech Czech Republic right. and Poland and all of this, but they were all these right. just independent principalities exactly before the and and maybe maybe there was a time when, say, the Austro-Hungarian Empire ruled. Ruled over a certain amount of territory, or the Prussian right. Empire ruled over a certain amount of territory, but it was still made up of these independent
0: right. kingdoms until until the 19th century. Yeah. Right? This is a yeah. very modern thing. Yeah. And what's interesting, France is more homogenous than right. the others, right? right. Um, and so they're they're a little bit different that way, and the kings have a little bit more power, um, and they start to develop ideas that you know modern ideas are. Uh, like divine right of kings, that kind of thing. They start right. to adopt those kinds of uh, mentalities. But um, So just to give you this idea, um, a little more consolidated, nonetheless, these two groups had growing religious tensions to the point of, and I think I read that about 10 to 15% of the population ha- was now um, a Huguenot. Wow. And they tended to attract the rich and the educated Mm. so um but again think about this it's those people that are do have the education that can read scripture for themselves that become empowered by the voice of scripture Uh, which we also saw in germany kind of the heart of the the reformation Mm -hmm. and france by the way i happen to know is much further behind in um advocating for uh education for the population Mm. than germany so and this is something that martin luther brought up comes in with the With the um, Reformation, is that this idea of laity learning? French don't really want the laity. Kind of stuck in
1: that feudal system. Uh,
0: Yeah, so you have that they want this. um, They they understand the uneducated are easier to control. Right, but you do see this with the Huguenot, who again are getting influenced by the Reformation. Yeah. Um, so, um, one of them, um, Henry of Navarre, was actually a successor to the French throne, and so his presence made the Protestant threat even greater. Um, and, of course, because the French were so substantially Roman Catholic, they had great ties to the papacy, and the papacy wanted to keep them Roman Catholic, um, and uh, so this Protestant claimant to the throne caused great concern. Anyway... Charles Ninth would come to the throne a little unexpectedly. He was, um, uh, as his brother uh, before him died, and he was the son of Henry II and Catherine de' Medici. Henry Second died, um, leaving the throne ultimately to Charles. And so he was only 10 years old when he took the throne at the age of, um, when he took the throne. And, and he's going to die here at the age of 23. Wow. Now, any youngster uh, before age of majority is going to have a regent. Right. And his regent was Catherine de' Medici. So here's that Medici family that has so much power. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are uh, French bank, excuse me, Italian banking family, Florentine. Um, Remember, a lot of them are are popes. They're involved in the papacy. There are, so they're involved in the church that way. Uh, If you remember... um, 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 Catherine. Uh, I guess Catherine de Medici. There, the there's another a sister who's going to be married to Philip II. So they're going to be involved um, after Mary Tudor dies. So there's going to be um, there's going to be influence there against the English crown. There's just all these things going on. This this jockeying. Well, the interconnections
1: of, between the political powers of, exactly. of, of Europe in that day were were exactly. very close.
0: Now. It seems like there's two two directions you could go. One is that you can do a toleration, like mm-hmm. you have in England, or you can have complete and utter um, hatred and destruction. And so, Charles the Ninth is an interesting character because he became very impact, influenced by um, a Huguenot leader, Coligny, is was his name, and and he, they, um, they make some decisions to try to balance the power to allow some toleration and the big occasion for this was going to be the marriage of his sister margaret of Valois to henry of navarre whom we just met right um and they all met in paris on on the day of saint bartholomew's day and this uh, big feast day and they were going to have this this wonderful marriage and the idea was that it was going to add some peace a a, a french version of the toleration that we Mm -hmm. were seeing in england um and lots and lots of Huguenots came to Paris um, to celebrate. And it led to not this happy wedding, but rather a huge slaughter. Um, and it's really interesting. Uh, they Historians really don't know how many were killed. Estimates, the one I have here is that there's 10,000 alone in Paris over all of France, which this is going to ignite or continue, I guess, the French wars of religion, maybe 70,000. They wow. don't really know how many people died. But this is this is really hard to wrap your brain around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so imagine this happening, um, 1572, right? Um, so Charles is going to die. They think that this really, really led to his kind of Demise. Um, just the mere weight of your soul on your shoulders of being king and having this done, um, and so he passes away. The French throne goes to his brother, who dies, and, and ultimately goes to Henry of Navarre, um, and and he's going to be Henry the Fourth. Of France, and um, though he's Protestant, he's actually going to become Roman Catholic, and that's going to be the only way they're going to be able to have some peace there. So it's kind of an interesting yeah. set of things yeah. that happen. But what it, what's interesting here is when Edwin Sandys decides to do this this remembrance service and uses this scripture. Why is he using <laughs> this scripture? You know what a strange thing. You know, so is this a commentary on? on the afterlife is this a commentary on on charles and i think in part it is maybe a commentary on charles well first of all one of the things we know about charles the ninth is that um he had get 23 he's not been in a majority very long so he's not done a ton but this this Call he has to serve the poor, and so one of the things that he does um, when he's only sixteen years is is ordered that all French towns and parish organizations support the poor. Mm. So here's a guy who's made this edict, if you will, that we need to care for the poor. So all of a sudden, this starts to make more sense. Yeah, but even then, it's still an interesting space. But I think it's also a commentary on, in some ways, shape or form. how um is showing showing support for charles by as a supporter of the poor over and against the actions of his mother and catherine de medici has gone down in history as the black widow which many historians feel today is not a fair um a fair name for her that she probably was also a pawn in this whole thing but that she was the ultimate organizer of saint bartholomew's day but she oh, was really? that's that's been the reputation is that she knew these people would come to town and then she would order the massacre and they would be able to establish roman catholicism but she was very much impact she was very much a pawn of the duke of guise who was another figure in this playing along that was jockeying for power in french politics um so there's a lot more going on there so she probably was really trying to figure out how her role would work um uh, within the context of trying to protect the crown for her children,
1: knowing a little bit that I do about about uh, you know the succession of of royalty in that era, i can I can imagine there were a lot of a lot of influences that were vying for power and mm-hmm. and I'm sure n- nobody felt nobody who held any kind of a throne or a crown felt ultimately safe.
0: oh, absolutely not. and of course, this was a time not. When John Knox is riding against the monsters, mo- mo- the monstrance rule of women, right? So mm-hmm. riding against Mary, Queen of Scots, and um, Mary Tudor. Um, and uh, so there's this kind of, I mean, blatant misogyny going on mm-hmm. against women. So why not attack Catherine for this? Mm-hmm. It's kind of part of the age mm-hmm. um, that women shouldn't be in these kinds of roles. So she kind of gets attacked, and... Uh, with modern scholarship today, people are feeling like that probably isn't a fair... Well,
1: it's not the full picture.
0: It's not the full picture, exactly. Yeah. Nonetheless, this, this, the horrible things happened, and the English want to uphold Charles over this, in part to set themselves as continued supporters of the Protestants there, mm-hmm. um, whom they do support. And so it's a really interesting use of this text to say... You know, obviously, those who are rich and those who aren't caring for the poor are obviously the ones condemned to hell, where these mm-hmm. who are going to help and this Charles, who is just a pawn, he's lifted up in huh. the bosom of Abraham, right? I mean, he <laughs> becomes, because he's tied with ladders, because he uses the wealth well, mm-hmm. he becomes um, elevated. And yeah. it's really interesting choice. Mm. So, anyway, it's just kind of a. Um, it's just kind of a, an interesting use, and um, I might add uh, in this, too, that the Roman Catholic Church uses this whole St. Bartholomew's ma- Massacre. They actually justify it, right? They claim this is okay because it's a process of rooting out heretics. Surely, yeah. um, So this sermon by an Anglican bishop um, is making the commentary about the inappropriateness of the action of the Roman Catholic Church by supporting this um, and throwing support to the Huguenot, which... The English crown, of course, supported. Yeah, and so it's just it's interesting on how scripture is kind of being used as a tool um, to support to support the the royalty, and I think it reflects too the increase in preaching, the increase in preaching in the vernaculars that people are hearing this, and so people are beginning to um, beginning to to. I think it begins to support the idea of divine right of kings, right? That that the church is actually supportive in its words and in its ministry about certain people that certain people are are, are born to be there. Sure. So, right. Anyway, some Thanks. interesting ideas. Yeah. Hi everyone, we're back, and. I think today's scripture really points to us one of the difficulties of interpretation. Here today, we we we've unlocked it, and we feel confident in what we've put forth. But I know that I'm going to have parishioners that are going to make a lot of comments about hell, the nature of hell. This rich man deserved to go to hell, and how how that, and how um, how that we handle and deal with this theology coming at us, which almost is like, as I mentioned, is like this kind of reverse of of <laughs> works righteousness. <laughs> what like, do I
1: have to do to stay away from hell? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: exactly. Yeah. So, Alan, what do you think?
1: Well, I think it's challenging because, you know, um, people want to engage in what they see as sort of a literal understanding of the text. And so, this is what it says to me, right? This is what it means to me. I mean, the rich man died and was buried, and in, he's in Hades, and he's being tormented, and he's in agony and flames. Well, these are all ideas to us that are associated with that full-blown notion of hell that emerges in the 14th mm-hmm. century, right? right? But I don't think—it's a little bit like <clears throat> reading a full-blown, uh, fully divine, fully human Christology— that emerges you know, in the 4th or 5th century into the New Testament. You have the building blocks of some of that there maybe, but it's not there.
0: Right. And, and the
1: same thing is true with, with um, the afterlife. You have some hints and clues about the afterlife, but there's really not, not anything clear in terms of laying out this is what the afterlife looks like in the New Testament. And and part of the reason for that is because these ideas are still being developed as I've mentioned before. <clears throat> so even even heaven, you know, uh, you know a lot of people will say well heaven's described in the book of Revelation. Yeah, not really. It's the throne of God that's described. It's God's presence that's described in the book of Revelation. And and it's only, you know, by extension, people say, well, all the angels and all the people worshiping around the throne of God, that's what heaven's going to look like. Uh, there are other images of of the afterlife, uh, the blessedness in the afterlife in the Bible. Besides that, mm-hmm. you know, there's the image of the great feast. There's right. there's image of the, the the renewed garden. You know, there right. there are other that's images of, of, of the afterlife besides besides that. So <laughs> so that's the one thing I think we have to understand first of all is that the Bible is not as explicit about what the afterlife looks like as we would like for it to be.
0: And yet. I agree I think some of these folks are going to not accept that as an answer they're Do you probably see what not. I mean because in not. their minds in their minds is that this is is predictive of what heaven and hell look like um, well, they're
1: making some assumptions here Hades equals a fully blown, you know, Ed. You know, uh, Dante Alighieri version of hell. Right. Uh, whereas in biblical times, Hades did not mean that. Right. And so, the, part of the problem is translational. You know. Right. Um, should we leave it as Hades? Should we translate it the grave? I don't know. Um, but but Hades in the New Testament does not equal. Dante Alighieri's vision of hell. But then
0: again, reading these things about the torment and the, right? the, the thirst, and right? so how do you make sense of this language?
1: I would say this is probably reflecting traditional ideas that were developing in the cultural context of of the Jewish world, and Jesus uses them in the story, just like he would use agricultural imagery, right. you know, in another parable. Does that mean that he is specifically endorsing these views about the afterlife? That's the distinction. He's using these these sort of cultural ideas that are floating around because they're ideas that people would have been familiar with. But is he endorsing them? Is he explicitly trying to say, this is what hell looks like?
0: Well, I think we agree, no, because that takes the entire parable out of context from the... from the yeah. emphasis he's trying to make, yeah, um, you know, which is this reversal of the kingdom, which has been true for the breadth of breadth of scripture. Now, you know, if you're a Presbyterian minister if you go to a Presbyterian um, seminary, that we always talk about breadth of scripture right. and we always talk right. about the um, the eyes of love and and reading it through that context, and and yet when we have these passages that.
1: People get hung up on the word. They get of it.
0: hung up on it, and yep. and and yep. I can, I can see that. I can see that as being a real real challenge. Um, and because you read it, and it's 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 kind of abrupt to our ears, and then it's kind of like, what are we going to do with it? And I bet a lot of um, new pastors say, "I'm just not even going to. I'm not going there. I'm not going to preach on it." Well,
1: part of the problem is that we're swimming against the stream of centuries of tradition here. Yeah. Right. 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 Um. Uh, you know, I mean, Dante wrote in the 14th century, you know, <laughs> that was hundreds of years ago. And even the reformers, as you mentioned, were, were influenced by these views. Mm-hmm. And so you've got plenty of people who can say, well, if it's good enough for Calvin, it's good enough for me, you know.
0: Well, that's right. <clears throat> um,
1: again, you know, and here, this is the challenge, I think, of, of trying to, to teach as a preacher, trying to teach the Bible as a preacher, mm-hmm. because you sort of have to pick your battles. And, and you know, I have spent, you know, my whole career fighting the battle of, you know, Hades in the New Testament does not equal Dante Alighieri's version of hell. Right. You know, uh, the the New Testament version of of the afterlife is not nearly as clearly developed as what you find in the tradition of the church. But to this day, you know, there are still people who will say, but it says.
0: Yeah, but but it it says. says, But it it says. says.
1: And I think the question is, I think the question I would ask them is, but what does it mean? But what does it mean? What was Jesus trying to say? Mm -hmm. Was Jesus trying to say that, you know, if you're like this rich man, you're going to go to hell? Or was Jesus trying to say, if you're like this impoverished man, you're going to go to heaven? Or is Jesus trying to say something about the religious leaders and their refusal to extend mercy to people they saw as unclean? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, to the last one. And yet, at the same time, I keep thinking how many people jump over the parable almost altogether oh, and they go do. straight to this other point. They do. That they think the point of... And we talked about this at the beginning. I think the point of the parable is to illustrate if you... If this you is do, what the afterlife looks like. And and, and, and it and it's a works right. And, and I mean, even the Roman Catholic tradition, right? This vow of poverty thing we talked about mm-hmm. as being part of it is that... Uh, <sighs> And it's, it's 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 problematic, and it's it's problematic, and it's, um, I, and I think because the 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 education that needs to go with it,
1: right? Um, well, and that's part of the, the teaching uh, fu- uh, function of pa- of preaching, you know, and and you can only take on so much in mm-hmm. any one sermon. That's true. And so, you know, what I find I do is I try to do what I can in mentioning things here and there, whether it's in teaching a Bible study or whether it's in in preaching a sermon. And, you know, for a passage like this, you know, I'm going to focus on what is the meaning of this passage in the context of Luke's gospel. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, some of my folks, when I preach on this passage, are probably kind of come away from it and say... What what about this Hades thing and what mm-hmm. about this flames thing? You know, right. why didn't he say anything about heaven and hell? And and so you know, part of it is I think we have to model good biblical interpretation. Part of it is we we, we find the opportunities to 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 dialogue with people and and you know if someone asks a question well what about what does it say about what about all that it says about hades and the flames mm-hmm. you know that gives us the opportunity then to go into a further dialogue and to say well this is what's going on in the new testament time you know right. there really isn't this clear idea of heaven and hell like like we think there is, or like emerged right, in the right. late Middle Ages, right. but rather, you know, th- these are just kind of cultural ideas that are floating around, and just like any other mm. cultural idea that Jesus might have used to tell a parable, you know, Jesus is is it willing to to make use of these these right, popular notions. Right. But does that mean that he was endorsing them as as this is? what jesus says about the afterlife that's not what the po- that's not how this passage right. is functioning. And it's not
0: what the as we've said it's not really what the parable is about no about, um yeah
1: it's not the point of the passage not the point of the passage yeah um so yeah. i think i think i mean it's like it's like you're you're you know you're ru- running a running something into the ground or you're you know you're beating a you know, you're just beating it into the ground by by just continuing to say, "Well, that's not what the passage is about," and that's it's like you're a broken record or something. Right. But I think that's kind of where we have to come down on is is we we are seeking to approach this passage from this from the best um, principles of biblical interpretation that we know, and from the best principles of biblical interpretation I know from. My forty years of studying
0: right. the Bible, right. you know, this is yep. the
1: conclusion I've come to.
0: Right.
1: However, <clears throat> most people in the Presbyterian Church are not going to uh, allow me or anybody else to say this is definitively the way you should look at it. Right? You know, if, yes. if having if having a definitive heaven and a definitive hell makes sense to you, you've got centuries of tradition on Avoiding- your side.
0: I guess if it if 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 it calls you to act in faithfulness to God by some right. way, shape, or form, right. then I suppose it's good. I, I do worry, but
1: I would still insist, even if I even if I said that, I would still insist that's not what this passage is about.
0: I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> well, and I do think it can lead people, and this is also to that kind of finger pointing condemnation mm-hmm. of somebody else, mm-hmm. and that's always a worry, right? Yeah. And that, that takes us away then from being able to live and serve. Well, as, and that's that's Christians. one
1: of the reasons why maybe you heard, you know, as we were talking, I was trying to set this in the context of Luke's gospel as a whole yes. and pull in yes. passages from all over Luke and show the threads that weave into this, you know, because that's how I've always been able to help people open their eyes is right. by taking other scriptures right. that shed light on this passage. No, that's,
0: I think that's in that's probably the best thing to leave people with is looking at that context of yeah. Luke as a whole. I mean I, showing Luke is a, them
1: how how this relates to those other honestly, passages in Luke's gospel. Yeah.
0: One of the just the reality of our faith, we take these little pericopes out yes. and we preach on them. Mm-hmm. And um it takes it out of context. If we were sitting down and reading the gospel as a whole, I think we would hear this over mm. and over oh, and yeah. over, much oh, yeah. louder than when we pick them yeah. Out and then yeah. we preach on them. So, yeah, yeah I, 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 That's that kind of, maybe that was that kind of of uh, that kind of uh, support, uh, mental support. I needed to say, yeah. I got this. Yeah,
1: yeah I, I think I think that's how you. That's I mean that's been one of my most effective ways of dealing with some of this is just to show people how, show the show them the connections with the other passages in Luke's gospel and, and, and show them how it, it ties in yeah. with the themes that, that really are what the point of this passage yeah. is about. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us.
0: It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ.
1: We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together
0: listen listen for for the the word. word.